This is Your Working Life, a podcast that provides you with tools, inspiration, and resources so you can enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach. And today I welcome Colleen Ammerman to the show. Colleen will talk about the gender gap that still exists and how to shatter the barriers. Colleen, I am thrilled to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you, Caroline. I'm happy to be here. We're going to dive into a really important conversation about this topic, but I want to go back a bit because you started the Gender Initiative at Harvard Business School, and I'd like to hear a little bit about that and then how you became so passionate about this particular research. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, So the Gender Initiative launched... um, back in 2015, which is kind of hard to believe. But I actually came to Harvard Business School uh, a couple of years before that to work on something that the school was calling W50, which was the 50th anniversary of women being admitted to the MBA program at HBS. And so I had the opportunity with that project to work with a whole host of amazing people at the school, including um, several faculty Um, My co-author, Boris Graceberg, as well as the faculty chair of the Gender Initiative, Robin Ely, and others who were doing this great research on gender and really on other dimensions of inequality in the workplace, um, such as race and sexual orientation. Um, And so kind of got to know this community of amazing scholars. And there was a lot of interest in actually starting, you know, a permanent initiative on these issues at the school to kind of be a hub for that work. So was very privileged to kind of uh, stay on and, and develop the ideas for that and get that launched in 2015. And now, you know, get to work not only with Robin and Boris, but, you know, with dozens of other faculty who are doing really great work and really figure out um, how to get those insights out into the world and into the hands of practitioners and people who can actually use them to create real change. And so that's sort of to your question about you know, what I what led me to kind of be passionate about this research is just being at a place like HBS, having the opportunity to take such great insight and knowledge about, you know, why inequality is persisting in our workplaces and what we can do about it and help get it into the hands of managers and CEOs and leaders who can actually make real change. Lovely. Thank you for that context. It really helps. So I, I want to start off because you write so beautifully about the myths that exist and why we don't see many women in in leadership roles. So walk walk us through that because it it was really quite startling to to hear about the risks, the myths, excuse me, out there. Yeah, and I think this is one of the reasons we we kind of still are seeing gender inequality even today, right? Decades after so much change has happened in terms of law and policy, you know, so much discrimination used to be perfectly legal, um, and it and you know through the hard work of you know, advocates and activists and lawmakers and policymakers, we've changed that. But clearly that's not, you know, the, the full solution. Um, and I think part of it is, is because we still kind of carry around some myths about why gender disparities persist. You know, for instance, uh, there definitely is still a belief, and sometimes I think it's both conscious and unconscious, that women do not necessarily want to pursue leadership, right? So it's kind of the the explanation is you know, we don't see more women in leadership because it's kind of just the natural outcome of choices that they're making or their preference, right? Um, and the problem is that this is really just not true. <laughs> you know, if you look at kind of any any of the research, any of the social science on this. Um, but unfortunately, I think it is a pretty powerful myth. And, um, you know, what it does is sort of distracts us from 
actually looking at the problem, right? So if we kind of explain explain it away and say, well, this is just kind of because women would prefer to, you know, either take time out of the workforce or maybe be in kind of, uh, you know, lower paying fields out of a natural preference, um, we're not paying attention to all of the ways that, A, women who actually, you know, are actively aspiring to leadership are being pushed off the leadership track, you know, through real kind of discrimination and bias. But then also the ways that even women who do make some of those choices, like, for instance, you know, stepping out of the workforce for a period of time, those are not really free choices. They're very constrained choices. And I think we're seeing that so much clear, more clearly now with the pandemic, right, in the ways that the disproportionate caregiving burden on women, you know, is definitely contributing to women's exits from the workforce, not necessarily because they don't want to stay in their jobs and because they actually can't. And that was a problem prior to the pandemic. Um, and it's just become so much more visible today. Yeah, I agree. I agree. You know, I'm, I'm so glad that you are dispelling these myths to a global audience, because for example, I hear over and over again in recruiting scenarios, there isn't a pipeline of, of talent for women. And as you said, that's just bunk. That's not true, right? The, the research, the studies show us that that is incorrect. So thank you for helping to dispel those myths. However, uh, I think you and I would agree, you know, here we are in 2021 and there's still a lack of progress. So why? What are the factors that contribute to this lack of progress that we've seen with with gender equality? Yeah. Well, there's more than one reason, right? It's what, you know, social scientists call overdetermined, which means it's, you know, not just one thing, which is what part of what makes it challenging, right? Because even if you actually are able to, to take away one barrier or make one change, that's not necessarily going to create equity or equality, right? Because there's other drivers. So, I mean, I think first, it's just to understand that this is something where there's multiple components kind of contributing. Um, so one reason I think is some of these myths, right? Because again, it distracts us from actually attacking the real roots of the problem. Um, and I think, you know, another reason, and we get into this um, in, in the book in terms of thinking about solutions, I see one um, real need is for men to be more engaged. I think that the fact that we kind of tend to conceptualize the problem of gender inequality as a problem for women or a problem about women instead of actually a problem for society and gender equality as a social good for society, um, you know, is, is a huge missed opportunity, right? Um, and I think we really need men for lots of reasons, not least because they do tend, because of gender inequality, to be more likely to be in positions of power and influence, you know, to be more engaged than they are. So I think, you know, women have done so much, you know, as individuals and as activists and as movement leaders um, to create change. But I think it's really time to kind of ensure that everybody, you know, realizes they have a stake in the fight for gender equity. I was so thrilled to read this in your book. And and let's dive a little deeper because I, I wholeheartedly agree that we need men in this conversation. We need men to impact change and, and move that proverbial needle as allies, as sponsors, as partners in this, in this effort. So are there specific things that you would say to a global audience of, of women and men listening, here's how you can get involved? 
Yes, absolutely. And I think it's helpful for women to hear these kind of tips for men too, because we have the opportunity with the men in our lives, right, to kind of pass this on. You know, one thing that we found in looking at the research on the role of men is that, you know, a lot of men, they're not, you know, necessarily against the notion of, of gender equality or gender equity, right? Um, uh, you know, most men aren't, especially in kind of um, the sorts of companies, I imagine that um, a lot of your listeners are working in, um, but they don't necessarily know what their role should be, right? And, and, or kind of what's their place. So it, it's it's something where I think as women, we often can, you know, provide a little bit of that guidance for men in our, our lives, um, you know, who want to be allies to say, okay, here's here's what you can what you can do. So there's numerous things, which is kind of the great news for men is that there's a ton of things they can do. Um, and really there's something they can do whatever kind of their sphere of influence is. So for example, um, just men in their personal lives at home, right? As we were talking about, you know, with the COVID pandemic, this issue around the disproportionate caregiving burden on women is something men, you know, can directly impact tomorrow um, if they are parents, you know, in a in a partnership with a, with a woman, um, and they can actually step up and. Um, uh, you know, take on more of that caregiving burden. And there's also ways that they can kind of model that at work for other men, particularly if they are leaders or managers. So a big thing is um, taking the paternity leave that's available to you and, you know, recognizing not everybody has it available, but many men do. And there's actually, a, you know, a big gap in the uptake of parental leave between men and women. And it's understandable why, but it's really critical for men to actually take their full paternity leave, talk about it, be a role model in that arena to say, you know, this does not make me unambitious or, you know, not a valuable employee. This is important to me. You know, the my outside of work roles are important. Um, and I, so that's one thing, right, just in kind of the domain of, um, of caregiving in the home. But then there's a whole host of things that men can do just in the workplace to be allies to their female colleagues um, and certainly to be supporters of uh, uh, junior female employees. So, of course, sponsorship being a huge one. So we one of the CEOs that we interviewed was really conscious, he told us, about um, in his CEO role, uh, working to kind of give opportunities and visibility to a woman who he felt like should be in the mix to succeed him as CEO and kind of, you know, wanted his legacy to be when he stepped down the company putting its first female CEO. And so he realized that that's not something that he could be passive about. He had to actually make sure she had the opportunities to get that visibility to the board, to you know, grow a track record of accomplishment so that when it came time for those discussions, she, you know, she was already in the pipeline. She was known, right, as, as somebody who could who could step into that role. And eventually she was actually um, appointed CEO. But even for men who are, you know, not not a CEO, right, or not in one of these very senior roles, you know, you can take action when you see something happening that doesn't seem right to you. So we talked to um you know, a much younger male professional, somebody who was a few years out of business school, who told us about seeing a list of uh, phone screens for a junior role at his firm. And it was 50 people and there was not one woman on it. Wow. And he was, you know, kind of stunned, right? Like you are like, what is this? Um, and so he went to the HR department at the firm and said, 
you know, what's going on here? This doesn't seem right to me. That alone is powerful, right? Because it's, again, actually shifting the paradigm and saying, I don't care about this disparity because I'm a woman. I care about it because I don't think this is good for the firm and I don't think this is right. So that just that alone was great. But what happened was, unfortunately, HR kind of gave him the brush off a bit and said, well, we can't find any women. Going back to your your point, Caroline, about this belief that, oh, there's just not a pipeline. You know, there's just not women out there. But he did not believe that either. And so he actually worked with another colleague just to go out and, and recruit some women into the pool and basically came back to HR and said, well, we found some women. Um, and so, you know, kind of kind of disproved that belief. And, and eventually, you know, long story short, they were actually able to work um, with the firm, ultimately, you know, got some senior colleagues involved and could actually change the recruiting process so that that didn't happen again. But the point being, you know, he was not the, you know, you know, in a particularly senior role, but just felt like it was something where he could step in and step up. And so that, you know, when you see something like that, realizing that you have a role to play um, and you can take action, you know, has a huge impact. That is a great, great example that we can all learn from. Colleen, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to know more about. We want this podcast to serve all of your working life needs. Send me an email at caroline at carolinedowdhiggins.com. segue on something that we talked about uh, right before the break. And I think we need to look at women and men holistically in that we've got our work life and we also have our home life. So why is it important to recognize this, especially for women, when we're talking about gender equality? Because you referenced early, earlier, look, it's not always uh, equally distributed amongst a partnered relationship about who is maintaining uh, the home, the kids, the elderly parents, right? Often that falls disproportionately to the women. Yeah, absolutely. And it's definitely a big issue and something, again, that we're talking about so much more, which is great this year with seeing um, the impact um, of the COVID pandemic. So I think that's really important. And certainly, I think I would say, you know, there's a role for sort of some public policy interventions. You know, clearly, you know, there's an infrastructure we need around caregiving and elder care and child care to enable really the economy to function. And I think we're more aware of that than ever. But I think there's lots of things that organizations and even just individual managers can do around this. So, you know, leaving aside sort of gender, you know, disparities at home, which, you know, I said a few moments ago was a really important and, and uh, powerful place for men to step up and intervene to actually, you know, create more egalitarianism um, so that women aren't shouldering this much higher caregiving burden. So there's that. But even leaving aside that, there's things that managers and organizations can do to make sure that women are not being unfairly penalized for not just kind of the actual caregiving responsibilities they have, but again, going back to myths, sort of some of our beliefs about working mothers. Um, you know, so there's this research um, that's identified something called the motherhood penalty, um, which listeners certainly may have heard of. It's pretty well known. Um, but, you know, it's this finding that women with children are 
um, offered less money, you know, less likely to be hired, basically take a career hit that women without children don't. And then also men, regardless of, of parent status, don't experience this. And what's important about this research is that, um, you know, the mechanism that was identified is that it's because there's a belief that women with children are less invested and less committed to their careers, right? So that's just kind of this bias that we carry with us. And so the way this plays out, even just, you know, on a team is that managers very often with sort of thinking they have good intentions, try to protect women, right? So not offering them maybe um, an assignment that would, you know, or a, a promotion that would require a relocation or an overseas, you know, temporary assignment or just a really challenging client, you know, that that is going to be really draining. Again, thinking they're doing this sort of in a way that's helpful, right, to not, you know, offer this to women um, who, you know, have uh, have kids at home. But what they're doing, of course, is really just taking away the agency from those women to make their own choices about how to balance um, career and life. Um, and also kind of perpetuating this belief about women with kids not really, basically not being able to hack it, right? Not being able to um, be on the leadership track and kind of have um, a high-powered career. Again, it's, you know, women individually sort of can navigate this and make choices about how to balance this all over the course of their career, but it's not really helpful for managers to sort of, quote-unquote, protect them um, and sort of perpetuate some of these some of these stereotypes. So that's a big one just for managers to realize you know, instead of those assumptions, what I should do is kind of take an objective lens to who, you know, should be offered certain opportunities. Stretch assignments, challenging assignments are key to career progression. So I need to make sure I'm not sort of disproportionately taking those opportunities away from women. I love how you were so crystal clear specific. And what really resonated with me is, for goodness sakes, give women their own agency to make those decisions, <laughs> right? Let's not assume we can't mind read, give a woman uh, the chance to speak her mind and and let you know she might want to take that international opportunity. Love that. So Colleen, that was so helpful thinking about managers and leaders and what they can do to help foster gender equality. But what about more holistically from the organizational strategies? Are there things that uh, you're seeing that are that are working in organizations from a systemic viewpoint? Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is a really key one. I mean, I think it's an interplay, right? So you have to have individual managers and leaders who are committed to, you know, the, the, the mission of gender equality and committed to kind of carrying out processes and structures that create fairness. But then you actually have to put those processes and structures in place. And there's lots of ways that kind of you know, structural disadvantage gets baked into management, um, and that also gender bias creeps in if we don't actually create some some strong mechanisms to mitigate it. Because again, a lot of this um, is either subtle or, of course, unconscious. Right? We know a lot now about unconscious bias, and we're all sort of bringing to to our interactions this lens um, that that is not necessarily objective. Um, so, what companies really can do is kind of think about the whole life cycle of an employee, like going all the way back to even as you're just recruiting people into your applicant pool. And then, of course, moving forward, interviewing them, um, you know, integrating them, developing, training them, you know, performance evaluation, compensation, you know, retention, long term, all of that. Companies actually 
um, have um, the opportunity to apply a lot of really great insight from research about how to take the bias out or mitigate the bias or disadvantage in those processes. So, you know, the example of, again, all the way back, even before somebody gets into your company, you might be kind of skewing your applicant pool along gender lines without realizing this. And we go into a lot of detail, you know, on all these processes in our book, which obviously I'm not going to do now. But just as an example, there's tons of research showing that the very language we use in our job descriptions when we post jobs can really skew your applicant pool. You know, you can be even before you get to the stage of, you know, interviewing, say, five candidates, you might not be starting from a place of having the the number of qualified interested women in that pool to select from if you're using language that inadvertently kind of excludes them or sends a message to them um, that this may not be a company that will you know capacitate their career so it's really about digging into each of those processes kind of applying what we have learned over many many decades of research and uh, doing everything we can to kind of set up the processes themselves to be as equitable and fair as they can be and then you know managers and leaders can really come into it you know and foster their own you know inclusion and and sort of equity as as principles and capabilities of their leadership, but they're starting up from a foundation of a process that's fair. And so again, we go into this in the book, there's a lot of um, kind of great detail around what specifically you can, you can look at and address within each process. I love your book because it, it, it clearly describes the why, right? Why is that? uh, Why is this still happening? Right? Why is uh, gender inequity still such a big issue? But you also create very specific solutions that all the listeners can put into action. So as we wrap, let's let's think of one very intentional action step. What can the woman listening, right, wherever she lives in the world, what can she do to move her own needle in the direction that she wants it to go? What's one action step you would offer for women listening? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think I would go to something I heard from a lot of, you know, very successful senior executive women that we interviewed for this book. So we interviewed, you know, overall hundreds upon hundreds of people, a big chunk of them being women who have you know, navigated these barriers pretty successfully. You know, they may be still pushing for another promotion, maybe to the C-suite or looking, you know, to serve on a board. But these are women who have really um, been very successful um, and, and been very strategic about their careers. And one thing I heard from a lot of them was, you know, figuring out how to articulate what your aspirations are and and being direct about them. And again, I want to acknowledge this is a little bit trickier for women than men, right? Because we know there is some backlash you know, when women are ambitious or assertive. So, you know, that that definitely is, you know, I want to just acknowledge that. Um, but what I don't, you know, want women to take away from knowing that that backlash exists is then to think, well, I should, you know, really not be assertive or I should not be direct about what my aspirations are. Because we heard again and again from senior women that, it was really um, key to their career that they were able to articulate in very kind of concrete detail to their bosses, to senior colleagues, where they wanted to go. Um, you know, so so talking to you know women who said, you know, I recall one who said, "Look, it's not just about telling your boss, you know, well, yes, I want to c- grow with the company and I'd like to kind of grow my skills in this you know, sort of abstract way, but to say, you know, in maybe that performance evaluation annual conversation, you know." 
I'd really like to, you know, in, a, in two years, you know, be running this particular business unit, or that's, that's what I, what I'd like to do. You know, I, I have a really kind of concrete goal for what I want my career to look like and approach that, you know, in a collegial way, you know, in a way that, um, you know, you're expecting your manager to help you think about how to accomplish it. Um, but just really figuring out how to articulate your aspirations, whatever they may be, you know, whether they're the C-suite or something different, you know, maybe, you know, a certain type of individual contributor role that you really see as kind of the, you know, the, the, Z, the, you know, the, the apiothis of your career, where you want to get to whatever it is, figuring out how to, how to talk about it and how to articulate it so that the people around you can help you get there. Colleen, I have learned so much from you today. Thank you. Thank you for being on the show. And I am grateful uh, about your awesome book. Let me tell our global audience the name. It's called Glass Half Broken, Shattering the Barriers That Still Hold Women Back at Work. And of course, your terrific co-author is Boris Groisberg. And the book is available widely at Amazon and at all major book retailers. But we also want to honor the harvardbusinessreview.org book site. And that particular URL is store.hbr.org. Colleen, thank you. Thank you so much. And I wish you continued success. Thanks so much. It's been great to chat about this. And if you like the show, subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new listeners find us online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like for me to feature on a future show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.